Hello, hello everyone. This is Dr. Aaron Stair from bloomingwellness.com and this is another episode of Causes or Cures. Um, it's early morning here in New York City. I am on my first cup of coffee, <laughs> but um, I'm so excited about this podcast episode and I think you guys are going to learn a lot um, and it's super timely. So we've been comparing our COVID-19 response and when I say our, I mean in the U.S., the U.S. response, we've been comparing our response to other countries the entire duration of the pandemic. Some people who are dissatisfied with the U.S. response often say things like, why can't we be more like Singapore? Let's do what they are doing. So I said to myself, well, let's analyze that question and try to come up with an answer. Of course, they were saying that because Singapore has been praised for its COVID-19 response. They have a very low mortality rate. Um, so why can't the U.S. do what they're doing? Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Walid Abdullah, who is a researcher and a professor in Singapore. His research focuses on political parties, um, government. He recently authored a paper about Singapore's response to the COVID-19 outbreak, and I read it and it was excellent. So we're going to talk about that, and we are going to answer this question, why can't America do what Singapore is doing? Thanks, guys, and let's get on the line with Singapore. What time is it in Singapore right now? It's 10 a.m., so oh, it's, it's okay for me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I was really glad that you figured out the time difference. Cause yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, it's fine. It actually works out much better for me. Um, okay. 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 So, Wallet, I read your paper. Um, it was fascinating, and I thought maybe we could start out this conversation by you just kind of giving a brief introduction about who you are um, and and where you teach and that kind of thing. Okay, so hi, I'm Walid, and I'm currently an assistant professor at a university in Singapore, Nanyang Technological University. I'm an assistant professor in public policy and global affairs. So I did my PhD. Uh, it was a joint degree between joint PhD between National Uni University of Singapore and King's College London. So I spent a few years in in London, uh, maybe about three years in total. So yeah, that's about me. Um, yeah, and I, you have you have a lot of interesting articles um, online. Obviously, um, this is about uh, Singapore and the COVID nineteen response. I read that yeah. paper that you wrote. Um, so I guess I'll start with my first question here. Um, so obviously, sometimes in the U.S., uh, you'll hear people say, "Gosh, I wish we were more like Singapore." Um, right. Yeah, because it's sort of like the gold standard. You know, everyone was saying how good your response is. Um, but in your paper, you discuss how Singapore, you call it a competitive authoritarian state and how the ruling people's action party essentially controls everything, including the media, um, which is obviously very different than the U.S. So I thought, can you talk a little bit about the political structure of Singapore and how that relates to public health mandates and how the population um, complies with them? Sure, sure. So I literally teach a module for 13 weeks on politics of Singapore. So I would need oh. more than half an hour just for this question. <laughs> but okay. I'll, try, I'll try my best. I'll try my best in uh, two, three minutes. So so essentially, 
uh, a lot of people like to think of democracies as uh, as a binary in terms of you're either a democracy and you're not and it's fine it's fine to think like that uh, so in asia you have a probably a slightly different type of a uh, regime where you uh, where scholars have called it illiberal democracies or competitive authoritarian regimes so you have uh, you have a party which is in power at the same time you have elections which are not fraudulent they are legitimate but they are not completely fair so there are significant obstacles to the opposition so singapore can be considered a competitive authoritarian country we have been ruled by one party since independence from the british in 1965 and that's the people's action party so we've only known one ruling party uh, however it's not like china or vietnam where it's a one party state and other parties are not allowed to exist no in singapore we have opposition parties and they do contest in elections and they do win seats here and there but by and large the government controls uh, most things in society now having said that even the most authoritarian regimes is are never insulate completely insulated from public pressure it's just that they are more insulated from public pressure than a liberal democracy for instance so in singapore the government is insulated from public pressure to some extent but you are never completely because ultimately your legitimacy rests on uh, pleasing uh, the populace right and uh, there are other structural advantages that uh, i just wanted to share because singapore is a very small country a uh, small population as well five point something million so from east to west right so uh singapore is about 30 miles uh so that's not it's is you can cover so i literally live uh my office is in the other end of singapore and i take about 40 minutes to come here uh by uh, by road so so that's uh so there are certain things we need to put in context when we want to apply it to the american case i think yeah so you, yeah. you can cross the country in 13 miles is 30, 30, so 30, 30. Okay, yeah. so a little more, yeah. a little more. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, no, right, I think those, that's, those are excellent points, um, you know, in terms of uh, just getting the, the population to go along with, um, you know, the mandates. Um, yeah. So the first phase, um, COVID-19, um, what happened? How did Singapore respond to that? And um, I know you talk about the learning phase. Can you talk a little bit about what they learned from SARS? Yeah, so uh, one of the main reasons why uh, the East Asian countries did pretty well uh, in managing COVID is because they had learned from SARS, uh, which was in the early 2000s. And one of the main things that the Singapore government learned was uh, it's a uh, uh, stepping up its efforts and abilities to do contact tracing. And again, uh, this is where what I said earlier uh, must be put in context, right? Because we are able to do that significantly well, firstly, because Singapore is quite a small country, uh, contact tracing, right? Secondly, uh, in terms of the competitive authoritarian state, Singapore has surveillance uh, strategies in terms of there are CCTV cameras, right? There are cameras. Uh, almost everywhere in Singapore, and Singaporeans have generally accepted that as as something good, not something to be frowned upon. So uh -huh. again, our understanding of privacy and liberty probably slightly different from from many Americans. Uh, okay. So it, 
Yeah, so it was able to do uh, contact tracing pretty well. And at the, uh, at the start, uh, the focus was almost exclusively on contact tracing. And therefore, uh, we were able to isolate the, the affected individuals pretty well. Uh, that was the main focus of uh, phase one, I would say, contact tracing. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and very interesting what you said about cameras. I totally agree. That probably yeah. would not go over it well. Fly. No, yeah, I wouldn't fly in America. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> um, um, so, so, okay, so let's talk about the second phase. Um, yeah. And there seemed there were more cases though, right? Like you, there yeah. was an um, an uptick in cases. Um, yeah. So, so how? So what did what did the government change? What did how did they respond to that? Yeah, so the, the steps uh, were incremental. Uh, so initially, masks were not mandatory. In fact, they were discouraged because the government was worried. Uh, in, initially, uh, according to the WHO, uh, masks, there was some debate about the efficacy, effectiveness of masks, right? Yes. So masks were not, uh, were not uh, mandatory, but later on it became mandatory. And then contact trace, uh, sorry, social distancing became mandatory. Uh, and... Uh, slowly, uh, we entered circuit breaker in April, where we were essentially, all of us were not allowed to leave our houses unless we were buying essential groceries or we were essential workers. Uh, so it became, that was uh, in April. Uh, and what was, there were two main, uh, two main arenas of, of COVID-19 management in Singapore. One, and this is the, uh, the terminology used by the government, but I think the terminology is problematic uh, to some to some extent. Uh, but anyway, I'll just I'll just say why it is. So one is the community cases, and the other are the foreign workers. So Singapore is a country which relies a lot on uh, low wage foreign labour, especially from countries like India and China and Philippines and Myanmar uh, in the construction industry especially and most of these foreign workers they live in dormitories and the living conditions are quite cramped and conducive for the spread of COVID-19. So the second phase right was when there was an uptick in cases in the dormitories. So in the community quote unquote community there was there was this uh, there was a rise as well but in the dormitories the rise was significant it was exponential and that's when uh, phase two really, uh, that's when circuit breaker had to be implemented and a lot of things and a lot of things in Singapore run uh, because of uh, the foreign workers, for instance, in the construction, in the cleaning industry. So uh, a lot of things did not, uh, life had to not function as per normal, but that's the, that's the case for the entire world anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so, right, so I, I was really fascinated when I was reading about the foreign workers. Um, so how how much of the population does that amount to? Oh yeah, so uh, the so Singapore in general relies a lot on uh, foreign talent. So uh, so we have about five point six but five point seven million uh, residents, maybe three point something million uh, locals, and the rest are foreigners. Uh, and maybe you have around one million people uh one million foreign workers uh in in the sense that i was talking about so so it's a significant amount yeah it's a wow. significant yeah 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 um right so so the the face masks weren't mandatory obviously face yeah. masks in america have become uh, a source of um a lot of arguments yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um 
Yeah. So, so they became mandatory in the second phase. Um, and, and then uh, like the population was okay with that. They're like, yeah, we're, we're yeah. pretty much yeah. everyone. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and so, and you, you use the word circuit breaker. Um, yeah. now we, over here, we say lock now, lockdown. Um, I'm assuming it's the same thing, but I just wanted to it's ask. It's the same. It's your permission, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the government is circuit breaker, yeah. Circuit breaker. It sounds like yeah. a ride at an amusement park, but um, <laughs> um, well, you know, like a really scary roller coaster. But um, so did like everything was shut down? Cause I or like did your yeah, schools? Okay. Ah, okay. Okay. So most most things were shut down. So schools initially, the Minister of Education resisted closing down, and I think the reason was was really enlightened, because if schools are shut down, uh, and essentially if the economy is shut down, is the upper upper classes and upper middle class that can lead life as per normal. But the people from the lower socioeconomic status are the ones who really suffer from it. So the ministry really resisted uh, the urge to shut down schools. But eventually, once the cases uh, rose, the number of cases uh, uh, rise, was rising, uh, the, the government uh, implemented uh, sc schooling from home as well. So uh, home-based uh, schooling. Uh, but eventually, schools were slowly uh, reopened. But there was a period in time where essentially everything was shut down. Yeah. And and I can I can I just say something about the mask? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the the background is also that uh, there is a high level of trust in the government in Singapore. So uh, in July we had an election, and it was one of the government's worst showings ever. But the government got sixty one percent of the votes, and that's that's considered one of the worst showings by its standard. And it got about maybe 90% of the parliamentary seat. So we have a parliamentary system like uh, like Britain and not a presidential system like the US. Uh -huh. So uh, in, in Singapore, the issue of the mass, when the government says backed by science that this is what is needed, so there wasn't really a pushback against it. Uh, whereas in America, it is the, the mass uh, issue is emblematic of a political and cultural divide as well, mm. uh, which is why it became uh, accentuated. Whereas in Singapore, that cultural divide doesn't exist or it hasn't existed yet. That it, that it may exist uh, in the future, right? And as it became sort of the symbol of the battle between conservatives and liberals in America, right? But we do not have that kind of uh, political and socio-political background in Singapore, which is why it was quite easy uh, for the mass uh, a mandate to be accepted by the people. Um, yeah, that that's that is really different than how it is here. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. People view it. As, some people think they don't work, um, and other people view it as you know that that's a violation of my personal yeah. liberties. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and there is there is not there's not a lot of trust in the government. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so here's a question though: Are there any rebels in in Singapore? Like, say somebody uh, didn't wear their face mask or decided to open up their business. Did that happen at all? Um, and or if that would happen, what would be um, the consequences of that? So there were there were but very few, and immediately, especially in the initial stages, the government clamped down hard on those people. 
uh, and really made examples of them. And by and large, there was no public support for such people. So those people were not viewed as heroes. They were viewed as troublemakers by and large by the population. Mm. So in that sense, there are no rebels. Okay, In that sense, generally, there are no rebels. So in terms of criticizing the government broadly, in terms of its restrictions on freedoms and liberties, generally there are there are there is a small proportion of the population uh, which is more critical of the government uh, and i i would say i i, I am also uh, amongst those who are a bit more critical of the government but just to be to be fair uh, and to be objective i think by and large the government has a lot of legitimacy amongst the general public mm. um, yeah yeah no i mean well that that that's that sounds I mean, it sounds like things would run smoothly then. Um, oh, absolutely, especially if you are uh, if you are going to implement even more draconian measures, right? Like the circuit breaker or lockdown is an extremely draconian measure, right? Yeah. And for that to work, people need to buy into it. And for people to buy into it, there needs to be other other things which are in place. For instance, trust in the government, trust in institutions, not just the government of the day, not just a government with a small g but government with a capital letter g right, right. so the institutions of the day uh, and generally there is trust in at the moment okay i don't want to jinx it who knows what <laughs> will happen in 10 to 15 years right yeah. but generally there is a there is a lot of trust and and all the surveys bear this out apart from elections which is the most important survey in my opinion but all the uh, surveys we have uh, do bear this out that there is generally a large a, a, a trust, uh, a huge trust in the government. Yeah. Um, now, what about um, religious place, places of worship? Uh, you know, right? I don't yeah. know if you saw over here. The Supreme Court um, just ruled in, for for New York. Like, you know, New York City had the rule yeah. that yeah, churches and synagogues. I I I don't know the specifics, but they couldn't have um, you know, a certain amount of people or some sort of lockdown. But um. The Supreme Court, you know, ruled against that and said it was a violation of religious freedom. Do you, are what about over there? Right. So uh, maybe I, I look at the bigger picture first before I answer that specifically. So in general, in Singapore, Singapore is absolutely obsessed about racial and religious harmony. Absolutely obsessed. So a lot of draconian laws in Singapore are justified. For instance, restrictions to speech are justified on the basis of maintaining racial and religious harmony. So in fact, just a couple of days ago, the Minister of Law and Home Affairs said that if the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists have had done that in Singapore, they would have been arrested. And uh, that's basically the Singapore government's approach to religious uh, and racial relations. So it's a draconian approach, but it's fair, generally fair across all the religions. Right. So, yeah. uh, so uh, generally, Singaporeans have accepted that then there can and need to be restrictions towards uh, religious liberties. Okay, uh, and uh, national interest needs uh, needs to be paramount. Whatever, whatever nation and however national interest is defined. So, uh, when when it came to to this, uh, to the circuit breaker and COVID nineteen, so the places of worship were closed as well. And uh, I, I personally am a Muslim, so uh, for Muslims, we have to attend Friday prayers. Mm -hmm. So it's compulsory for us. Uh, but uh, during the circuit breaker, so the Islamic Religious Council in Singapore issued uh, a religious edict saying that, and, and later on, I think Singapore, the Singapore 
edict was one of the first, if not the first in the world. But later on, other countries uh, did the same as well, said that it was not compulsory uh, during this time to attend Friday prayers. So it was suspended. So it was suspended for Muslims. Yeah. So later on, uh, it was the mosque were reopened later on, but 50 people at one point in time at a time. So uh, many people had to miss uh, Friday prayers and, and they said it's fine. The religious scholar said it was fine. So so again, uh, initially it was closed during the circuit breaker, but it was progressively, it's progressively being reopened, just like how the rest of the country is. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did not, the religious uh, places did not get any uh, additional protection. I see. Um, well, yeah. and it's, it sounds like too, like uh, the leaders of the religious leaders were, you know, kind of in tune with the with the public health yes, recommendations. Absolutely, they were. They were. So there was no there was no public disagreement between the religious leaders and the government and the scientists. There, there was none. And generally, we do not see that in Singapore. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when was you, you mentioned the contact tracing, um, and that you, yeah. you guys learned that from SARS? Obviously, another component of managing this pandemic is um, a lot of testing. Yes, um, correct. Right. So when did Singapore start that, the mass testing? Yeah, so testing was uh, was done, uh, it, it was done throughout, but there wasn't, it was stepped up much later. It was stepped up uh, probably in phase two and phase three. So, uh, which is why I think also uh, this is a, 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 a diversion. I don't know whether it's a diversion or a tangent, but I would say the number of cases number of cases of a country is misleading because it's, it doesn't, it's not indicative of anything. It's right. only indicative of the testing capabilities, right? So number of deaths actually is far more important right. uh, in my opinion. So, so Singapore really has, I think per capita has one of, now has one of the highest uh, testing ratios in the world. Uh, this is because now for the, in the dormitories, for every couple of weeks, if I'm not wrong, all of them have to go for, for checks, for, okay. for the swab test. So all of them, every couple of weeks, they have to they have to go for the test. So anyone in the construction sector as well. Yeah, um, um, yeah no, well, that, that makes sense. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, about the dormitories, um, yeah. I read in your paper, you mentioned that yeah. some of the citizens were more vocal about like yeah. the li the living conditions. Yes. Um, is the government uh, addressing that at all? Uh, yes. So this is one of the issues uh, where public pressure and public criticism, plus together with the practical realities, right? Seeing the number of cases rising in the dormitories have uh, pushed the government to urgently address and redress this issue. So they are. They're talking about new dormitories and improve uh, welfare for the foreign workers. And it's happening as we speak. So legislation uh, is being discussed and government policies are being changed. So there's some positive movement in that direction. And in, in the dormitories, is it, is it, are there like families in there? Or no, is no, it... no, 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 no. It's just oh. the workers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, just so. workers? In the, like, yeah, in yeah. The... Okay. Oh, their, okay. Workers, their families are back home. Ah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So all adults then, and yeah, yeah, all all male adults. Yeah. Oh, just males, no women. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Um. So I like what I liked what you said earlier about um, you know, the case number by itself um doesn't necessarily um 
mean yeah. anything anything horrible yeah. like you should always have a denominator like the case fatality right. rate right exactly. you know, it, yeah. yeah um so i so that said um the more you know what it what has been the case fatality rate in oh, right. in singapore like how how is it trending um and yeah. also so, you know, yeah. your hospital systems um were they ever overrun was anyone ever short of uh personal protective gear yeah so the the system was never overrun because uh generally the healthcare system here is quite solid and also there were a lot of uh, measures in place uh, especially at the start right so quarantine if you have uh, so self quarantine at home if you had symptoms uh, or if you really had a fever you went to the doctor and then you would be either sent to a facility there were facilities that were uh, that were designated for this or you were sent to the hospital until you recovered uh, so generally the hospital system was not uh, overrun and so far as of now there there has only there have only been 28 deaths wow uh, in the in the country and that's considering the number of cases uh, that's that's a phenomenal achievement um and i think also the the number of deaths is also related i mean you you would know this far better than than i would so it's also related to the general uh, well-being and health of the oh, citizens yeah. as well right so so that's a separate matter yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah. so but generally the mortality rate has been has been has been quite i mean it's quite low i mean every death is a tragedy of course but uh compared to uh, what right. could have been it was it was pretty okay are you guys in better shape than us? <laughs> oh, <better. laughs> are you? Are you? Well, I mean, I think our last time I checked the CDC website, I think they said like 42% of adults here in the U.S. are obese, which oh. um, yeah, which is a lot. That, that's a huge. That's a lot. Uh, yes, yes, and and if you look at you know how this disease um, impacts, uh, it, it just obesity makes it much much worse. Um, right. So, um, yeah, I was hoping like for this past year that we'd be focusing on like, you know, that too, that element of it, but we weren't as much, you know, just yeah. the obesity think, epidemic. Yeah. I think hard questions need to be asked of, I mean, not just there, here as well. So our obesity rate is, is hovering about around seven to eight percent for adults. So I mean, it, it can be better, but I mean, it's not it's not forty two percent. So <laughs> it's not forty two percent. It's not forty two percent going up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So there needs there needs to be serious question. But you see, so again, this is also related to what what I will say generally. There is a price to pay for freedom, right? And I think societies have to decide uh, what is the price they are willing to pay. So in Singapore, there's a lot of government regulation in every aspect of our lives, and that includes to that includes, for instance, uh, selling sweet drinks, right? I mean, it's not it's not illegal, of course, but then there's the healthier choice label by the government, right? <laughs> so the and the government has a war against diabetes campaign uh, that the prime minister mentions in his national national day rally, and people generally accept that. Yeah, the government should be taking the lead on most things. Whereas in in America and in other other countries, maybe there's more of a skepticism about the role of government in people's lives. One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Did you guys, I don't, uh, I'm not sure if, if you know the answer to this. I, I, act, I had a physician on my podcast recently who talked about um, how some, some countries were doing early at home treatment. Like they were yeah. right when they got diagnosed, they were getting kind of like a cocktail of medications. Um, was that happening in Singapore? Do you know? Right. So, so uh, my best friend is is a medical doctor. So, oh. uh, so I actually asked him uh, when you when you sent me the question yesterday. So, uh, so generally, those who are positive, you go to the hospital and then you do the blood test. And if it's not, uh, it's deemed as not serious, so it's mild. You either stay at the hospital or you go to other isolation facilities. So you're not at home. So there's no uh, at home treatment, right? So if it's mild, generally there's no. There's no uh, drugs which are recommended, but uh, if it's serious, then they give some uh, some uh, forms of medication. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's just such a low mortality rate. It's incredible. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, can you talk about the economy a little bit and what yeah. um, the government? Obviously, like during lockdown, people are going to be struggling for money. Um, so, how how did the government handle that, and and what does the economy look like now? Right. Okay. So, so again, maybe I just uh, go for the bigger picture first, then I zoom in on on the question. So, sure. Singapore is one of the one of in in per capita terms one of the countries with the highest GDP per capita in the world. Uh, it one of the richest countries in the world, I would say, uh, and one of the cleanest and safest as well. On the, but it's not perfect, of course. On the other side is there's a price to pay, right, for the lack of freedoms, and if you are if you see that uh, freedom or liberty is part of your utility function, then probably you're not comfortable with that situation, right? But anyway, so so we have uh, since we our economy has generally been doing well since independence, we have a huge amount of reserves. How much exactly we do not know because the government does not reveal it, but it's been estimated that it's one of the highest in the world uh, in uh, in per capita terms. So the reserves were drawn. Uh, so about 100 billion Singapore dollars, so maybe that's about 70 billion uh, US dollars, which is huge for such a small country, right? So uh, that were, were drawn. Uh, this is not the entirety of the reserves, of course. So just 100 billion uh, Singapore dollars were drawn for uh, for this crisis. So in terms of ensuring that employers did not, did not uh, sack employees, so employers were given... Uh, money to continue to employ some employees and in terms of direct transfers to citizens so this was this was done during covid uh, and and it's still is still being done uh, to some extent however the problem is unlike the us singapore is such a small country we do not have a domestic market of our own we rely a lot on foreign investment and on tourism and so our other industries uh, are suffering and there's only uh, you can only sustain uh, drawing on the reserves for, for a short period of time. So which is why Singapore is one of the countries which is really trying to reopen the, the borders slowly. And we have really talked about this a lot and trying to draw plans. So we had recently we had this uh, plan for the Singapore-Hong Kong travel bubble. Mm. So where you can go to Hong Kong as a tourist and not uh, have to do the quarantine. But it's been suspended by... Uh, postponed by two weeks because the rise in uh, that there was a rise in the case uh, in cases in Hong Kong. Uh, but anyway, so uh, the whole world is suffering from this economically, but so far we have been managing it okay. I won't say well, but that's not because of the government. That's 
because of the structure of our economy that is extremely reliant on an open world. Uh, and the world is not an open world at this point in time. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's it, that sounds am amazing, though, what, what, what you guys are doing. Um, I, so I, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but... Um, you know, well, over here, you know, everyone so has has a lot of people. Not everybody. Um, some people are really, you know, ready to kind of like go along with uh, public health recommendations, government recommendations. But a lot of people are super, super critical, um, right. as I'm sure you've seen. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, are people in Singapore? Or is it is it that they trust the government, or um, would anyone be afraid of any sort of backlash if they were critical at all? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the thing about being uh, brought up by Asian parents, right? <laughs> so, so there's a, a Asian parents always manage to instill the right amount of love and fear. Right? <laughs> so you're always, you always love and fear your parents at the same time, right? So I would say similar, similar. That's okay. That, that it, it may be whimsical, but the analogy you get the analogy of the government. So I would say there generally there is trust in the government, but also there is that the idea of uh, the worry of uh, being punished as well. So as I said, I am one of those who would be uh, people who consider more critical of the government. So and I sort of since I I study politics as well, so I sort of. I'm able to gauge where the boundaries are better. Mm -hmm. uh, so, which is why it gives me, but of course I don't want to jinx it and who knows. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I usually am quite open in my criticism. It's, it, and it's not really true that uh, the government doesn't allow criticisms. Of course, it doesn't allow to the, to the extent that it is uh, in the US. But generally, uh, there are some red lines where if you say those things the government would take you to task for instance if you allege that the government is corrupt they will sue you and ask you to prove it in court oh, right wow. that's not the case that's not the case in the us if you yeah. say the judiciary is not independent in singapore that's another red line but if you say the government is selfish and the government is money-minded and the government doesn't take care of its people i mean the government doesn't like that of course but they wouldn't go after you in the in the way that uh, they would if you allege that they were corrupt or the government was nepotistic and, and so on. So there are some lines uh, which are obviously narrower than, than the case in, in the US. Yeah, yeah but it's not, uh, it's not, I don't know, it's not uh, a case where you cannot say anything at all about the government. Yeah. Um, and and is, is the media mostly uh, state-run or are there any independent um, yeah, yeah. So generally, the mainstream media, well, it's not state run, it's directly and indirectly. So uh, there is a, uh, an act uh, which requires uh, the newspapers and TV broadcasters to get license from the government. So the, the control is there because you're always worried about, worried about crossing the line, right? And therefore, you self-censor. Uh, but uh, there's online media. Online media is uh, uh, tends to be more critical of the government, and they're allowed to exist. Uh, so, so even for me, I do uh, IGTVs with, and I interview politicians, gen uh, generally opposition politicians, but also ruling party politicians, and I try to push them on certain issues. and And so far, nothing has happened. 
and hopefully nothing will happen. Yeah, but generally we are allowed to do this. Yeah, as long as, as I said, you do not uh, go beyond the out of bounds markers. And and one of the one of the major out of bounds markers is race and religion. So any any whiff of uh, racial or religious insult, oh, the government would not tolerate that at all. Um, and and I want so that brings me to um the this this act the protection from online falsehoods yeah. and manipulation yeah. act i was really interested in that um, yeah. and what you know how the government responds to that obviously you know <clears throat> censorship has become an issue over here as well um a lot of people are saying they're being censored um i'd probably say it'd be more you know conservatives um but even yeah. i've heard i've heard it also from practicing um doctors who are saying things about the pandemic and they might have their video taken down, but it's, but it's the technology companies um, doing it. it. It's not, yeah. not so much the government, um, right. but it's still like this whole issue is still um, censorship is still an issue. Yeah. So I was, I was just curious about this act and what would happen if the, if the government, I guess they saw something that they didn't like or something went against the act. Yeah, so so the it's not about them not liking something. It's it's it must be misinformation uh, and it must be uh, an untruth, right? Something that is not factual. The problem is a lot of times in public policy and in life, you know, uh, the truth is not clear cut, uh, and and in fact, even scientific truths, right? At one point in time, there were opinions that were con that were put forth and then contested and challenged and eventually the scientific consensus comes, community comes to consensus, right, or sort of. Right. So so the, the, the problem that a lot of people, not a lot of people, but some people had, including myself with uh, the POFMA, that's the, the abbreviation of, uh -huh. uh, of the act with POFMA, uh, was that the government is the first arbiter, the first arbiter of what is truth. So if the government says that this is untrue, then you have to put a correction notice on your post. Uh, and of course, you can challenge that in court. You can challenge that judgment in court. But most people would not take the trouble, right? They, they rather, yeah. I'll, I would rather not post this, rather than go through the hassle of possibly being, uh, POFMA being invoked against me, and then I have to take this to court. So I just don't want to go through the hassle, I'll just not post. So. Uh, there is uh, there is that. I think the the act does lead to more self censorship. It does, uh, but again, generally the people who are against the act were civil society activists and academics and those who are quite liberal. Uh, when I, the general populace did not really uh, express opposition to to the act uh, in spirit, I think and. In fact, in the initial days of the pandemic, there was a lot of misinformation being spread online. Mm -hmm. uh, POFMA was invoked against those people. I saw that from my anecdotal observations, at least, I saw that people were quite supportive of the act. It was only during the elections when POFMA was used against the opposition, that's when public sentiment sort of turned slightly against the act. So it's not about the act itself, so it's not about the principle of censorship, but it's about how it's used. 
Whereas in America, it's slightly different, right? The tech companies, are, even though they, they say they are neutral, they are not, right? They do take, ultimately, they do take an ideological slant, for instance. Well, that's really interesting uh, that you say that yeah. because, yeah, over here, um, I, I think people identify now more than it was like 10 years ago, even five years ago. People identify a media source and they're like, oh, that's left-leaning, that's right-leaning. Right. Uh, do you, would you would, do you think that about our media? I I think I think so. I think so. I think so. And I think uh, I was I I am uh, not a fan of uh, the current president who will not be the president anymore. But but when I look at some media outlets, for instance, right? Yeah. And I can see why people would be turned off uh, by this mainstream media that claim to be objective and. When when people see that, right, they would be pushed further in the camp of the president. Right. <laughs> when I see just, uh, and this is just as a person who doesn't, who is not a fan of the president, right? but I'm just looking at it from a political scientist point of view, and and I see that oh my god, the media has to do much better. And I mean, and also there is a problem, I think, uh, and I think this is a problem for liberals in general, uh, that. Uh, we should not really look at op opposing views with condescension mm. uh, and and we take the the high ground and and don't be surprised if people turn around and say oh the mask is a liberal wearing the mask is a liberal tool of propaganda right yeah. because we've been we've been talking to them as if they are subhumans or they are not as smart as us so yeah. when they when they push back against our what what are legitimate right the call to wear the mask is a legitimate one right so we must we must be careful i think in in terms of our attitudes towards uh towards dissenting views yeah and not not you know not all of the criticisms against uh, the prevailing signs about about the uh, the pandemic right with regards to the pandemic were were invalid right because that even in the scientific community there was debate about some some issues uh, and also, ultimately, this is a public policy, uh, public health crisis, right, which involves uh, the economy as well. So you can have legitimate debates about reopening the economy. Just just because you say uh, we advocate the reopening of the economy, we should not say somebody's anti-science. Because oh, no, that, I, I agree. Yeah, and yeah. same thing with the schools too. Um, exactly. And, exactly. And like you said, um, a lot of these things are going to hurt the poor people the most, you know? Right, so, exactly. And sometimes we really have a, uh, an upper middle class or upper class uh, bias and I think snobbery when yeah. we talk about, uh, because, you know, work from home is a luxury. Yes. Then, then, then we, and then we say, oh, everybody must be socially responsible and they must stay home and uh, bite the bullet. Well, easy for us to say because we can work from home, right? Right. Yeah, but, not, but not everyone can say that. So No. I mean, even yeah, some of the, yeah. the wealthier people I know, you know, who have kids, like, well, some of them are like, you know, they have college degrees or graduate degrees and they could do right. the teach, teaching themselves or they get tutors. Right. Um, that's that's a luxury. A lot of people don't have that. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I totally agree with that. And yeah, and I think we, we don't know, they should teach a class or, um, you know, positive discourse, like how to just have a conversation with someone that, you know, who doesn't agree with you. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, be like America is just, we're so tribal right now. It's just, right. um, exactly. it's, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess um, my final question here, uh, it's got two part question. Um, 
So, you know, everything you've just said about how Singapore has handled the um, COVID-19 and, and obviously it's in terms of like mortality rate and everything else, they, they've done a great job. Um, do you think what Singapore did would ever work in the U S that's the first part of that question. And, um, second part is what, you know, U S says a lot, Oh, look at Singapore, look at Singapore. And then, um, so what is, what does Singapore say about the U S right now or how we're handling the pandemic, if anything? Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first one is, uh, yeah, it's not everything is replicable uh, because, as I said, Singaporeans in general, in general, the social contract is that we give up uh, liberties uh, in in exchange for security and safety and prosperity, uh, and there are trade-offs. There are trade-offs. I think whether other countries and other populations are willing to embrace those trade-offs in different ways that's up to each population so I, re I really cannot say oh this is the right way I mean, in fact as as you know and from reading my articles i want more liberty and freedom right. uh, but but i accept that most singaporeans do not think like me and that's that's a reality i have to accept right and if you believe in uh, a democracy you have to accept the democratic outcome as well mm -hmm. uh, so uh, so that's the the first thing second thing is you know the U.S. interestingly is always used by Singaporeans, right, who are against liberal democracy, as an example of a dysfunctional democracy. Even pre-pandemic, you know, it's always uh, and talking about the government shutdown and these are the dangers of a two-party system and this is why for a small country we need a one part, uh, one dominant party. So it's always being used by uh, not just politicians. I'm saying ordinary citizens as well. Yeah. Uh, so the Singapore always uh, sees the U.S. in that way, but uh, I mean, and that's partially true. But I also see the U.S. There are many, many things that Singapore can learn from the U.S. Right, in terms of its commitment to freedoms and liberties, and in terms of just the flourishing of ideas, and in terms of activism. These are things that I think other countries can learn from from the U.S. Uh, what probably one thing that the Singapore experience has shown that maybe other countries, including the US, uh, can take note of. I think that political polarization right, has vast implications. Uh, and it has implications in ways that we would not have expected. We would not have expected that to uh, the liberal conservative divide or the Republican. It's not even the Republican democratic divide. It's a lack of faith in the establishment, right, in the political establishment. Mm -hmm. It has implications for wearing masks who would have thought that right in the past it's just because you have lost trust in and this is one thing it's not just on the people who are saying that you sh who are spreading the conspiracy theories it's on them but it's also on politicians who have for many many years uh, lost the trust of ordinary citizens right and uh, there's a lot of blame to go around i think uh, yeah no i i agree and i think too we have um too much money you know, in our political system too, with the lobbyists. Which Singapore doesn't. Which Singapore doesn't. Uh, so mm -hmm. there are uh, campaign finance laws. Uh, but yeah, and that's a huge problem as well. And that leads to a lack of trust. In, yes, in... totally. Yeah, because yeah. you're always like, well, who's funding this? Or you know, exactly, exactly. Why, why do they support this? Let's see who's donating right, right. to them. Um, Walla, thank you so much for your time. It was really interesting. Um, yeah, and I learned a lot, and I look forward to uh, sharing this and getting some feedback. Um, 
So thank yeah. you. And no uh, problem. yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And good luck to you and uh, your family, uh, you know, to get through the rest of this. Hopefully there's, you know, a vaccine soon or whatnot. Um, right. We need yeah. that. <laughs> hopefully yeah. hopefully uh, the US does does okay too and right and hopefully um, you can go to Singapore one day yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the US will will pull through i mean we yeah it will it we, will yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, I, I i do believe in us um we just yeah that we're yeah i think i think uh, in the grander scheme of things uh, the US i think the US survival is never it's, it's not really at stake. I wouldn't really worry worry about that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean the US will pull through for sure. I mean it's countries like Singapore, smaller countries that should worry about our relevance, but yeah. US should should never worry about that. <laughs> well, we can all yeah no, but like I think you made a good point earlier. Like we can all kind of learn things from each other. Um, yeah. You know, in terms it's a balancing act, like an equilibrium. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. Definitely. Um, anyways, thank you. And no I, I, I will, yeah, I'm going to, I'll share this um, with you and uh, look forward to getting the feedback. Yes, please. Uh, thank oh, you. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Enjoy the rest of oh, your bye -bye. day. Okay, same to you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to Causes or Cures. Thank you to Walid for coming on and enlightening us. I thought that was great. I learned a lot. Um, I hope you did too. If you want to reach me, you can do so through my website, bloomingwellness.com. And of course, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, thanks, guys. And enjoy the rest of your day and hope you tune in next time. Bye.